We are in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. The title of today's sermon is Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's, um, I think what we'll do this morning is we'll pray first and then I'll kind of remind us all of the context and then because there's only a few verses, we'll read them as we go. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you to bless this time. I ask you to bless our, our minds and our hearts as we try to aim them at you and point them at you and think of you and focus on you. I pray that we'd be able to learn from your word so that our lives are changed this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so like I said before, the first part of Romans was all kind of about doctrine. Paul was really setting the stage, laying out a whole lot of stuff about the gospel and, and where sin came from and the problem of sin and, and the law versus grace and Jew and Gentile and how it all comes together and how we should kind of be living. Like, what does it mean as Christians that we still kind of struggle with sin? He went through all those things, but then starting in chapter 13, it changed from being all about doctrine to being all about application. application. Good job. And so now it's all about how do we as Christians live? And so a couple of the Sermon titles have been things like what Christianity looks like. And so we can kind of, so far at least from chapter, I'm sorry, starting from chapter 12 on, we can, we can look at from 12 to now, we can kind of break it into different ways that Christianity should look like. So for example, in Romans 12 verses 1 through 2, that was kind of like what Christianity looks like towards God. We talked about being a living sacrifice giving ourselves completely to God, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed as we learn about God. We're renewing our mind to the truth of the word. So that was how Christianity looks towards God. And then we saw how Christianity looks like in the church. And that was kind of Romans 12, verses 3 through 10, about how we should not be arrogant or prideful, but we should use our gifts in the church. We shouldn't suppress our gifts, but we shouldn't be jealous of one another's gifts or try to like be greater than we are. We should just have the faith we have to use the gifts that we have to bless the church in different ways, to serve in church. And it talked about how we as Christians should be characterized by love more than anything else. We should love one another, be devoted to one another. And then we saw in uh, chapter 12, verses 11 through 16, what Christianity looks like in everyday life. As we go about our, our business, whether we're working or we're homeschooling or we're studying or we're in school or in our relationships, we should be doing all those things as if we're doing them to the Lord. We should be doing them with diligence. We should be uh, rejoicing in hope, devoted to prayer. And as we go about our day-to-day life, we should be of one mind with our church. As we're leaving our Sunday fellowship throughout the week, we should be thinking about each other, praying for each other. Like All of that was what, what it looks like in our daily life. And then we saw... In verses 17 through 21 of chapter 12, what Christianity looks like in in persecution. Don't repay evil with evil. Leave that up to God. Let God avenge us. And then last week we saw in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, what Christianity looks like towards government. We talked about respecting authority, not being rebellious, not being an anarchist, obeying the laws as much as possible unless it goes against our faith in some way unless it would cause us a sin against God. And I gave examples to why Paul kind of implied that in what he was saying. And he also talked about seeking to do good because if we seek to do good, we don't have to be afraid as much of authority. We talked about the need to pray for our leaders. And so today we're looking at 
what Christianity looks like concerning laws, which is kind of like a subset of the government. You know, it's still kind of that topic. But then we're going to look at what Christianity looks like concerning sin. So what Christianity looks like concerning laws and concerning sin. So let's look at the first part of that, concerning laws, starting in verse 8. Paul says in Romans 13, verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So this is an interesting connection to the previous verse in terms of taxes and customs and giving things to those where it's due. He also then comes here and says now, don't owe each other anything except to love one another, which is to say there is actually a debt that we owe one another. That's what Paul is kind of saying. He was saying, yeah, give to Caesar what Caesar's, pay taxes if they're due, you know, give whatever custom to custom, but one another, you owe each other to love one another. So don't owe anything else except to love one another. So this is a debt, in a sense, that we're to be repaying one another. So if I am not being kind towards one of you, I'm actually not paying you a debt that I owe you in God's eyes. He expects us to feel that way towards one another, that we owe each other love and honor and respect and all those things. It's the only debt we should have between one another, according to Paul. Now, this isn't the I love you, but I don't have to like you right now kind of love, right? This isn't like the how to lose a guy in 10 days when she goes, I love you, but I don't have to like you right now. That's not this kind of, this kind of love is what's called agape love. The word here is agape in the Greek. This is the, the 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. This is the love is patient, kind, not jealous, not arrogant, not seeking its own, not keeping account of wrongs, bearing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. This is the kind of love Paul is talking about that we owe one another in God's eyes. It's not optional in God's eyes. We actually owe it to one another to be this way. Not just when it's easy, especially when it's hard. Because it's normally not easy, or else God would not have to ask us to do it. If it came naturally to love one another, it wouldn't be like, love one another. That'd be like saying, keep breathing. I'm ordering you by the mercies of God to keep breathing. You're like, no, I breathe anyway. No, it's hard, so he's telling us to do it. We owe it to one another. And this is a proof that we are Jesus' disciples. This is a proof. If, we, if you want to look at your own life and say, am I really a disciple? A proof is, do we love one another? And that comes from this verse in John 13, verse 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. All right, so then Paul goes on um, to explain what he meant. So the last part of verse 8, he said, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Well, what does that mean, Paul? He goes, God goes on to kind of explain it in verse 9. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbors yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So if you really love someone, you care about what they care about. Right? And Paul didn't make this up. He got that from Jesus' own teaching, which we'll get to in a second. So Paul is saying here, you know, if you just love each other rightly and correctly and completely, you won't need to worry about following all those other laws because they're going to be 
automatically fulfilled by doing this. But what do we do when that's not easy? How do we handle it when someone's hard to love? When someone's difficult to love and it's challenging to love them, how do, we, how do we get past that? How do we learn to love the unlovables? How do we learn to not just accommodate and not just comply or put up with, but actually love somebody who is very hard to love? Let's look at where this teaching comes from. Let's go to the source, what Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 22, and if you want to turn there, and if you've got a phone, turn that over too and then get a real Bible. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But turn to Matthew 22, starting in verse 35. Matthew 22, verse 35. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then Mark adds strength to that. But this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So first, he's saying, love God with your heart, soul, and mind. And that's the greatest commandment, right? So this comes first. Everyone get that? The first, the greatest commandment is to love God with your heart, with your soul, with your mind. Now, the second is like it. The second is like it. The second commandment to love your neighbors yourself is like it. In what way is it like it? In what way is it similar? They are similar because they're related, but they're related not as equals, but as one being greater than the other. So Jesus says, this is the greatest, love God, but this one is like it, it's similar to it, but how do they relate? They relate because when you care about somebody, you care about what they care about. So if you love God right, if you do that right, then you will already begin to love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you love God, then you're going to love what God loves. You're going to care about what God cares about. And so, in my view, if you're having a hard time loving an unlovable person, the first thing you've got to do is go back to where's my love for God at? Because the stronger my love is for God, the easier it's going to be for me to love even the unlovables. So, so get that part right first. But even that's... Oh, what? Yes? How did you come up with this verse? Because this kind of relates to what is happening now. It's exactly related to what's happening. You should just listen. At school? Kind of. At school? So, so this is what God does and what he's going to continue to do in your life. You're going to have situations happen in life. Then you're going to come to church and the preacher is going to be preaching about exactly what's going on. And God does it that way on purpose because he cares about you. He'll actually have your life, have certain things happen so that as you come to church, God can begin to speak through the word and help you to understand how to live your life for him. So isn't it cool that it's happening for you? It's pretty awesome. That God continues to do that. So, this is the, the first point. So you're having a hard time loving somebody. First, go back to where's my love at for God? Because that'll be the first thing you've got to do. But even that is not always easy. So what do you do if you're having a hard time loving God? Pray. Pray. Do you remember that one story? Um, I think I had the reference in here somewhere too. I might have forgotten the reference. Oh no, it's, it's in Mark 9 where Jesus asks somebody, do you believe? And the guy kind of crying says, 
you know, I believe, but help my unbelief. There was a kind of honesty there where he was like, look, I'm struggling. I do kind of believe, but I kind of, I'm having a hard time. Can you help my unbelief? And I feel like in the same way, we can say to God, look, I do love you, but help my unlove for you. Because there's parts of me that aren't loving you. There's parts of me that are not giving over to you. There's parts of me that I haven't surrendered to you. Help me with that. I'm just going to be honest with you about that. Help me with that. And God will answer those prayers. The, um, the times in my life where I have noticed a lot of answered prayer about my personal walk is when I've been extremely honest. And I've had to say things to God like, God, I don't want to follow you right now. I want these other things more than I want you. I'm just being honest with you. And if you want me to change, you got to help me with that. And I feel like in those times when I've done that, he's actually met me there. And I've noticed myself begin to change. I've noticed my desires begin to change. So we can ask him for help in those ways. So Paul is saying here, we ought to love one another. And if we do that, we don't need to worry about having to obey all these different commands because we're going to end up obeying all the commands if we love one another. But when that's hard, if you're having a hard time loving somebody, first, ask yourself, how is my love for God doing? And if I'm not loving God enough, that will affect my ability to love others. So we can pray. We ought to be in the word. We ought to be having worship. We can, this day and age, we've got all this digital stuff. We can be listening to worship songs all the time to get ourselves in the mindset of worshiping God, loving God, reading our word all the time, and then asking God to help us. So if we would just do these two things, if we would just love God and we would love people, we wouldn't have to deal with, you know, should I steal? Hmm. You know, should I, should I lie? We wouldn't have to ask those questions. Those would be resolved by the fact that I wouldn't want to hurt somebody. I wouldn't want someone's toy to break. I wouldn't want to cause somebody else to hurt somebody either. If I, if I tempt them into doing a sin, I wouldn't want to cause somebody else harm. So the next part is what Christianity looks like concerning sin. We look at verse 11. So do this, what he just said, do these things, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. As Christians who are saved, who have eternal life, there are only two ways that we pass from this life into the next. Either our bodies die and we're immediately with the Lord and Spirit, and then at the end, we're reunited with our now perfected bodies. There's that path, or there's a path where we get to be here till the end when Christ actually returns. We meet him in the air, First Thessalonians 4, that whole thing. Those are the two aspects we have when we get to leave this life. But what Paul's saying here is that either way, this moment of passing from this life into the next is getting closer and closer the longer we live. And that should actually be something that we're excited about. And Paul calls it here, waking from sleep. And I love that phrase, that concept. I actually heard somebody once who was announcing that one of their loved ones had passed away, and they said, so-and-so this morning awoke from sleep to be with the Lord. And I love that phrasing because as believers, we're not really dying when our bodies die. We're actually awaking, in a sense, into the real life. And this whole thing has kind of been a dream. It's kind of like what Paul says, we sort of see things sort of vaguely now, like dimly in a mirror, but we're going to then see face-to-face you know, as we, as we get closer to the Lord and as we pass from this life into the next, it's going to be like waking up from a dream. It's going to be like so much more clear, so much more light, and so much more joy. And, and that should be something that's exciting for us. Eternal life is going to be awesome. That's the kids fill in the blank. Eternal life is going to be awesome. And we are to live with this hope. And with this sense that we are every day getting closer and closer to waking up on the other side and being with the Lord forever. And that's where our true life will be 
much more complete and clear and happy and full. And with the Lord, it'll feel like waking up. And this knowledge, what Paul is saying, should excite us and should cause us to want to prepare ourselves for it. So do these things that Paul said. Love one another. Do these things knowing that the longer we live, the closer we're getting to awaking to be with him. And then he says in verse 12, the night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So this is, this is similar to what um, John says in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, when he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, talking about the resurrection. It's not really clear what we will be in the resurrection, but we know that when he appears, we'll be like him, because we'll see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. So as we have this hope, as we have this idea and this dream and this desire, this excitement towards this new life where we've begun it now, it's going to be even better than if we have that hope, we're preparing ourselves, we're purifying ourselves, we're living for him, we're doing more for him, we're, we're putting off the deeds of the darkness, putting on the armor of light. So he's using figurative language here, kind of like a soldier would take off armor or put on armor or lay down certain weapons and take up certain weapons. He's kind of using that figurative language to say, put, put off the deeds of the flesh, the things that you used to do in the flesh, the things that you used to do when you were a sinner. Put those things off and take on the armor of light. So this figure of speech you know, um, let go of those attitudes, those behaviors, those thoughts that are associated with darkness and instead take on these attitudes and behaviors and thoughts that are associated with light. And then Paul gives us some examples of what he means by that. In verse 13, he says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. So behave properly as in the day, which is kind of a cool analogy, like pretend like everyone is seeing you all the time is kind of what he's saying. Pretend like your entire life is lived among those that are watching in the day, in the light. Not like those who, take, who came to Jesus at night so no one would see him take Jesus at night. We don't live in the night. We don't live a secret life. We don't live where no one's watching. Live in a way that's as if you're in the light all the time. This term carousing, just so you know, carousing and drunkenness. So the um, apparently in that time and in Rome and in this kind of Roman culture, there was this certain tradition where people would get you know, drunk and they would hit the streets and kind of have a riot, not necessarily like a violent riot, but more of like a, a celebratory, like cheering and dancing in the streets, kind of like worshiping a certain idol. And they would do this as a form of worship. But then there was all, yeah, partying, there was also um, a lot of sensuality that went along with that. Sometimes a lot of promiscuity that went along with that. Um, and so that, that's what Paul was kind of going against. He's saying, don't, don't follow that stuff anymore. So um, like Thayer's Greek lexicon is called this a nocturnal and riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows who after supper parade through the streets with torches and music in honor of Bacchus or some other deity. Paul's saying we shouldn't look like the world. So I had this conversation with Lindsay yesterday about this because... Um, Somebody that I used to know growing up in my, my church growing up, turns out I don't know where he's been for the last 20, 30. I mean, he's, I haven't known him for a long time. He's in a whole different state. But this guy now has gotten into some extremely horrific crimes, and he's going to probably go to jail for the rest of his life for these crimes. And so we were talking about how she was saying, I can't relate with that kind of crime. Like, I could understand this certain kind of 
sin, but I couldn't relate with that kind of sin. And we were just kind of thinking about how, it's interesting how we as a culture can relate more with certain kinds of sins and we're more grossed out by other kinds of sins. And I think every culture, we're not all the same in that way. Some cultures have different sins that they consider more horrific than others. And so we have, I think what's, what's, what's happening is that we as cultures begin to be desensitized by certain sins. I think in our culture, for example, we, we have a lot of entertainment that's focused around two things. We have violence and we have sensuality. We, you know, we watch these violent films and we can catch ourselves actually rooting for the guy and hoping for a certain outcome. Well, that disconnection is causing us to be desensitized to violence. And so we have to be aware, that's why I'm talking about it, we have to be aware of this. And so in the same way, think about most of the romantic comedies you might watch. How many romantic comedies have you seen where the people always dress appropriately and treat one another with honor and respect and have a godly relationship? Most of the times in these... Most, yeah. Most of the times in these movies, what is the climactic moment where they finally express love to one another? That's normally in a bedroom. Right? It's like, it's not really love until it's in the bedroom. That's what the media teaches you. It's not really love until that thing happens. And yet, you can catch yourself in that film, like, kind of hoping, like, they get together and hoping that, even if, like, or the story of, like, the unhappy married couple who meets the guy, and, like, you end up hoping that they, they have an affair because the husband's so mean and so cruel. But then in the real world, like, God will want you to not think that way. God will want you to. Get marriage counseling and go to a pastor and pray more and go to church and rededicate yourself to the Lord, right? And yet in film, we can catch ourselves rooting for behaviors and lifestyles and fashion choices that in the real world we shouldn't have. And the result of that kind of desensitizing is that we, as people, can be more violent than we should be and we can be more sensual than we should be. We can be obsessed with fashion more than we should be. We can be obsessed with the, the desire to, you know, how does everybody else look? How does everybody else feel? What do they think about me? How am I dressing? Am I attractive? And that can happen because we're desensitized to it in a sense. Where, like I was thinking yesterday about the story of Joseph when he's tempted by, by Pharaoh's wife to have an affair, you know, and he like escapes, like his clothes were ripped off and he's running out and he's thinking like, I cannot sin against God this way. And I'm like, how far have we come as a culture from thinking about sensuality and, and lust and wanting to be attractive as part of our identity? How far have we come where a lot of that we think is just like fashion and is like normal compared to where Joseph would have been like, I could not sin against God that way. I wouldn't want to stumble my brother that way. I wouldn't want to stumble my sister that way. I hope they don't think that way about me. I hope that I'm not causing somebody to have lustful thoughts about me. I hope that I'm not causing anyone else to think that I'm flirting with them. Like, I hope that I'm not doing, far be it from me that I would sin against my, my Christian brothers that way. And so as we watch entertainment and we watch these violent films and we watch these rom-coms, I just want you all to be aware of that because catch yourself. Protect your heart from starting to root for things that in the real world you wouldn't and you shouldn't be doing. Because this starts to get us to be desensitized and all of a sudden we're doing like this carousing and drunkenness in the streets and promiscuity and sensuality and then we're, we're striving and we're jealous. Paul's being very clear that we should not live this way because time is short. Every day we're coming closer to waking up from this worldly dream and walking with the Lord forever in paradise. And because of this, we should behave properly like it's day, 
like Christ is with us, like all of our thoughts are open for the world to see, like all of our, our, our actions and our behaviors and our longings, as if they're all totally visible to the whole world around us and they're exposed because it's day, live that way. Behave like children of God as those who are earnestly expecting his return. So don't follow the world. Don't approve of the world's lusts, drunkenness, violence, and whatever else the world follows. Instead, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So continuing in the figurative language here, like Paul was saying earlier, lay aside these deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. He's now saying put on Christ. Put him on like armor. Put him on like a cloak. Wear Jesus. Be protected by him. Be covered by his grace and forgiveness. When people see you, what do they see? Live and behave in a way when people see you, they see Christ. They don't see a sex symbol. When people see you, they shouldn't be thinking about your muscles all the time. When people see you, they shouldn't be thinking about your, your figure. They shouldn't be thinking about, they should be seeing Christ in you. They should be seeing Christ lived through you. And when you speak, they should be hearing words of grace and peace and love. Things that Christ would say. How would Christ live? How would Christ speak? How would Christ dress? How would Christ act towards one another? That's what Paul's getting at here. Time is short, and we shouldn't be caught up in what the world tells us to be caught up in. We don't need to be distracted by what the world tells us that's important. Make no provision for the flesh. Be intentional about not giving an opportunity to those things. Don't seek it. Don't allow it. Don't provoke it. Don't provide it. Don't look for it. Don't be consumed by things of the world, things that are important. Instead, put on Christ. Wear him like a crown. Be proud of Christ in you. Be proud of what Christ has done through you. Be proud of what he's doing through you. Carry him about you as the most important thing in your life so that when people know you, what they know about you is that you're a Christian. You're, you follow Christ. That's the goal. That's what Paul's getting at. That's what Christianity looks like in these verses. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, um, I ask you to help us because we're living in a different time than Paul lived and some of our struggles are different than what Paul and the church in Rome struggle with and yet some of the things are the same. And I ask that you would help us to know what it, what it looks like today to be a Christian, what's acceptable, what's appropriate, what's proper, what glorifies you so that we're not distracting, we're not um, causing others to think that things are important that shouldn't be important. We're not causing others to think that we have priorities that aren't your priorities. Help us to be people that are all about you, people that are all about loving you and loving others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.